0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the structure of those polyphenols, like a, a structural biology or like an organic chemistry standpoint, I just actually look at them—they're so they're, they're very very interesting. Also from the skin, also from the rind, like from the whole fruit—it's it's a it's a very very uh, exciting and interesting molecule, you know. And, and certain bacteria in the gut love it as well.
1: Fitness, nutrition, biohacking, longevity, life optimization spirituality and a whole lot more welcome to the ben greenfield life show are you ready to hack your life let's do this hey i get a lot of questions about testosterone replacement and the approach that i use i'm working with this company called maximus i really like them they have this maximus testosterone restoration protocol One of their offerings that's super unique is they combine enclomaphene and pregnenolone with this tailored approach. And that means that you're able to get testosterone without having an impact on things like fertility or liver health, which is a common worry with other treatments. This is a scientifically backed regimen. They test me. They get these blood tests easy, shipped straight to my house. I don't have to drive to a clinic. I stick the blood test on my shoulder. I put it in the box. I send it back. It takes me five minutes. And the team over at Maximus can adjust my hormone replacement based on that. It's a very, very cool company. They're incredibly communicative. Great customer support, good products. Over 15,000 clients already benefit from their expertise in enclomaphene and testosterone restoration. Therapy, so they're not not just a just a player, right? They're leaders in this field. So if you want to take control of your health and optimize your hormones, Maximus Testosterone Restoration could be your starting point. So you could check it out, see if it's a fit for you. Uh, Get on a call with them or fill out their form, and they'll figure out what you need. On average, you get a two x increase in total testosterone, and on average, a two x increase in free testosterone. Not shown to impact your fertility or your liver, you get to work with a doctor that specializes in men's health to optimize your hormones. Here's where to go. MaximusTribe.com slash Ben. That's MaximusTribe.com slash Ben. You might know that Super Bowl Sunday is right around the corner, and people drink on Super Bowl Sunday. Many of them, perhaps you, drink alcohol. Now, if you heard my recent podcast with this incredibly smart guy named Zach Abbott, who's a PhD, we talked about a genetically engineered probiotic the world's first genetically engineered probiotic that helps you to metabolize alcohol see alcohol actually creates some toxic byproducts in it but zbiotics help you to deal with alcohol including the alcohol you might drink on super bowl sunday i've used this stuff i throw back one teeny tiny little shot before i drink and i feel amazing the next day So, of course, I do not encourage you to drink irresponsibly. Drink responsibly. But part of drinking responsibly, in my opinion, should include addressing that nasty acetaldehyde stuff that makes you feel like crap the next day after you've had alcohol. And ZBiotics takes care of that. Now, ZBiotics is going to offer all of my listeners a 15% discount on your first order when you use code BEN15 at ZBiotics.com. You can go to ZBiotics.com Ben15 or use code Ben15 at checkout. 100% money back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. And now you can enjoy Super Bowl Sunday or wherever you plan to drink with ZBiotics and feel way better. So you've probably heard of Nootropics which are mind-directing compounds that enhance your cognition. You may also have heard of adaptogens, which help with focus and mood and sleep and recovery by acting as kind of like a volume-up, volume-down dial on your body. But have you ever thought what would happen if you mix nootropics and adaptogens? Well, this company, MTE, which stands for More Than Energy, appropriately enough, did just that. They blended 13 carefully selected nootropics and adaptogens into this powder, I've been putting a little bit in my morning glass of water and experimenting with this stuff, and I like it because I think the nootropics could tend to pick you up too much. The adaptogens kind of balance that out, so you get this amazing combination, and uh, it's, it's pretty low in caffeine. It's got a little touch of caffeine in there, but they use a theocrine, which comes from green tea leaf, structurally similar to caffeine, similar energy benefits without any of the common side effects of caffeine. Very well-formulated compound. I've been very impressed. MTE, more than energy. So anyways, you get that 20% off your first order. If you go to getmte.com forward slash Ben G, that's getmte.com forward slash Ben G. And there you can use uh, the code Ben G for 20% off your first order. Well, folks, it's been quite some time since I interviewed my guest today, uh, Raja Deer. Raja, did I actually pronounce your last name right, by the way? I, I feel like I did, did this years ago when I first interviewed you deer deer got it nailed it d-h-i-r so anyways uh raj if i recall properly didn't we do our last podcast at some farm down in la or something like that do you remember that
0: i I think we did i think it was a. I think it was maybe a ranch
1: i assume you are you're not surrounded by horses and dogs like we were last time
0: no though that that is an optimal
1: uh, <laughs>
0: environment uh, for <laughs> for your health yes. and microbiome.
1: Um, good for the just, microbiome. Uh, yeah.
0: Just uh, trees, trees and dogs.
1: Okay, cool. Well, uh if you didn't hear my first podcast with uh with Raja, I'm gonna link to it. If you go to Ben GreenfieldLife.com slash seed two. That's ben greenfieldlife.com slash seed the number two. Because we talked all about probiotic myths and different forms of probiotics and longevity effects of probiotics and male versus female takes on different forms of probiotics and a whole lot more. But Raja has been up to a Ton since then in the whole realm of the microbiome and probiotics. So he's one of the smartest guys I know when it comes to translating research and making it applicable, particularly for things like your gut and your digestion and your poops and everything that is related to your microbiome. So he founded and oversees something called Seed Labs, where they're actually solving a whole bunch of complex ecological problems with bacteria, but then he also helps out with the company Seed Health, which is a microbiome science company that is pioneering some very cool probiotics. As a matter of fact, Raja helped to to found that company and uh, he does a lot with it. It's the same probiotic that I take daily on a regular basis. Uh, I take three capsules a day of this stuff by Seed called a symbiotic. And we're going to talk all about that and what you need to know when it comes to probiotics. So, Roger, welcome back to the show, ma'am.
0: Thanks, man. It's good to be back.
1: Yeah, and if I recall properly, you you have like a definition of what a probiotic actually is. That could be a pretty important way to start this podcast because I think the way you define a probiotic is is interesting and perhaps even a little bit novel.
0: Well, it's the it, m- mostly sticking to. Uh, the international consensus of the term, the scientific international consensus, which is uh, defines it as a live organism. So it has to be live, uh, which confers a health benefit to its host. So it could be probiotic for different types of hosts. It could have different health benefits, but it has to be live and it has to confer a benefit to its host. And the range of that benefit is the degree of,
1: or the, the flavor of the probiotic. So when you say that a probiotic has to be live, I don't even know. Like if if you were to go to Walgreens or CVS or whatever and grab a probiotic off the shelf, how likely is it that it's live? I mean, what most products do is use very
0: um, industrial and stable, but low diversity strains. So a handful of strains that they'll put a very high amount of, put it into a state of sleep, so to speak. It's a state of dormancy. And I don't know, I mean, I, it's, let's assume that maybe 75% have the organisms that they claim that they have. It's probably less, but let's just even assume that. That's just the first test. That's just the first stage. Those organisms then have to be alive through the gastrointestinal system and for the benefit, have some activity most likely in the small intestines and, and colon. That is the most of the known mechanism by which how probiotics work. So where that step of the process is very important. But what you really want is to know how many live cells do you have that are metabolically active all the way through the pipe. How do you test something like that? There's a few ways. I, I think some people try to approximate that from animal studies. I think that doesn't work. That doesn't translate very well. Uh the best system I'm aware of is a gastric uh simulator. It's uh it's a single simulator and then a twin version of it and, and you can actually stack multiple of them to run different experiments in parallel. And uh it's exactly what you think. It has a, a stomach and three compartments of no intestines and, and a colon. And actually there's a microbiome transplanted in the colon oh my that's gosh. Repres- that's to measure metabolic effects. So it's kind of in
1: uh it's a biological system, but it's but it's assembled in vitro. Okay, so how big is a gastric? Uh, you saw you called it a gastric simulator. Yeah, that's 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 a good term. Yeah, a gastric gastric simulator,
0: intestinal simulator.
1: Okay, is this is this like the size of an average human gut, or is this just like a huge machine in a factory? Mm, it's probably about half the size of a car. Oh wow. Interesting. See, it seems to me like (laughs) where my mind goes is couldn't there be a future where you could have your own home based gastric simulator that simulates your gut and you could just put stuff into it to see if it agrees with your gut before you decide to consume it yourself in the real world? The good news is that you probably
0: don't need it because microbiome, the level of personalization isn't that dramatic, I would say, uh, that we can't get from other types of large population studies. But were you to do it, one interesting thing to do would be to keep your microbiome from infancy, from birth, as it developed, as it matured, as it diversified. And in times of distress, you could re yourself with your own
1: original microbiome. I think I'd be interested in a chamber for something like that. Oh, yeah. You mean like if you went on a stint of antibiotics or had an issue or I don't know, had your appendix removed or something like that, you could or actually- you age-
0: or yeah, yeah you, as, as you age, you also lose a lot of the diversity from your younger self. So there's, there, I, I think there'd be many use cases of that. I think that'd be very interesting if you, have a yeah, good, just, if, you, if you start off with a good microbiome, which you have a better chance of
1: doing if you follow some guidelines out of the gates. Right. Just like banking your stem cells. We should probably go buy something like biomebank.com right now just to make sure. <laughs> we've got that when it becomes a reality. That actually reminds me of something I did want to ask you. If, if you are not born vaginally or if you're born via C-section, I should say, there's a lot of people who say that your gut is not really adequately populated with beneficial bacteria, the right amount of bacteria for years later on in life. Like until you're, I've seen figures like seven or eight or nine years old, Is there anything to that? Is that true or is that just kind of like a myth floating around the internet?
0: Yeah, that's not
1: entirely true.
0: So a better way to think about it is that the mode of birth, vaginal versus C-section, the mode of feeding, breastfeeding versus non-breastfeeding, and the presence of antibiotics are kind of three equally and varyingly powerful lever uh you know chairs of the of the stool so try to get as many of those right as you can and if you're able to do so uh you'll have a very good chance uh at what is considered an optimal uh infant microbiome which is dominated by a few different strains of bifidobacterium infantis making way for other bifidobacterium to slowly start to build with diversification and acidify the gut as the rest builds on top. So you'll, you'll have that if you follow those three. Um, there are studies where people are born non-vaginally, but there's no antibiotics and there's breastfeeding and a little bit of luck that the right strains found their way there. And they ended up with all known markers with a totally fine microbiome at six months and on. Okay.
1: What, what are the three strategies again, did you say?
0: Uh, vaginal birth, breastfeeding, and no antibiotics.
1: Okay, so if you aren't born vaginally, but you're not exposed to a lot of antibiotics and you breastfeed, arguably, you're still going to have a decent biome as an infant or your child is going. I mean,
0: if, there's, if there really is no bifidobacterium that finds its way there, you could kickstart the process by making sure that that infant has exposure to a few different strains of bifidobacterium infantis. But it, it could be there. It could not be the data's inconsistent on how how
1: B. infantis actually gets to infant guts in the first place. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious the extent to which the vaginal flora makes a significant impact, or I guess even like the fecal matter that they say that the child is exposed to going through the birth canal, if that really is as significant as a lot of people say. I mean, I think it is. I think it
0: is important for other reasons a perfect infant microbiome like let's say three two weeks or three weeks out from being born should be dominated by bifidobacterium infantis one bacteria and you know why because it takes hmos it takes the sugar the the prebiotic fibers in breast milk it engulfs them entirely and it leaves no nothing else for any other pathogen to grow there's nothing left over It internally entirely metabolizes hmos internally so when B-infantis is there, it's not allowing any potential pathogens in that early period of life to take hold. Secondarily, it trains the immune system to promote tolerance. And so it's a very big driver of minimizing what's called that atopic march, those conditions of allergy, asthma, sensitivity, inflammation, uh, excessive inflammation. That, that tolerance, we believe, is taught from that bacteria and so for infants that are getting that bacteria initially from fecal content or very rarely a a reservoir vaginally that contact is very important for others maybe it finds its way in a a different way but you if you want an optimal microbiome out of the gates that's what you should that's
1: those are the conditions you need so are you saying that the what do you call it, bifidum infantis? Bifidobacterium. That's the genus. Okay, it's a very okay.
0: interesting genus. Even in our research for many different stages of life, that's a good. That's a very good one. And the uh, uh, species is called infantis. I think it's a subspecies of longum, but it's Bif- bifidobacterium infantis. That's the
1: Latin name of the of the bacteria. Okay, so are you saying that Bifidobacterium infantis is like the only important strain in a young human being up to a certain age? I mean,
0: at least one strain. There there are other different strains that have different benefits, but as a baseline, Bifidobacterium infantis is. In fact, the healthiest infants in the world are dominated by almost exclusively Bifidobacterium infantis until diversification.
1: And, And at what age does diversification usually
0: occur? That depends on when you, bring, when you bring foods into the mix. So as long as you're exclusively breastfeeding, you're pretty much gonna be dominated by
1: Bifidobacterium infantis in an optimal state. Okay, I got it. And these HMOs, that's human, human milk, milk oligosaccharides, oligosaccharides right? Yeah, that's, that's okay. coming from, from mom's milk. Is there a benefit to consuming HMOs after you've finished breastfeeding? Like let's say for me, like for an adult who wants a healthy gut, Is consumption of human milk oligosaccharides something that's beneficial? I mean, that's an interesting question. I think that I think that it could be, but I think that if you have certain
0: diet, if if you have the right diet, it's not necessary because you'll still give plenty of oligosaccharide-like structures that you find in the food matrix. So it's preferential. So it can, in periods of distress, probably tip certain communities in a more favorable way, but. My perspective is that a rich and varied oligosaccharide composition in your diet
1: should overpower any additional effect that HMOs would have in adulthood. What are some other ways that you get non-human milk oligosaccharides? These other oligosaccharides that you mentioned from food, from food. I mean, in in
0: virtually all uh, plant, rough plant. Matter, you're going to find some version of them. I mean, they're in many, many different fruits. They're in many different vegetables. They're concentrated uh, uh, very highly in tubers. You're getting, you're, you're getting them if you're eating carbohydrates from plants. Most generally come in the form of if they're not, if they're not sweet, generally come in the form of variably digested oligosaccharides, varying chain length prebiotics. That's what you're, you're getting these types of fibers from your diet. Now, there's some that are better, that again easier to get. There's some that are, are more useful in different periods of time versus others, but an optimal healthy microbiome at the adult stage should be able to tolerate and, and actually demands an extremely diverse
1: portfolio of plant fibers. Okay. So you've got your monosaccharides, which are like the single, very simple sugars, then things like polysaccharides or oligosaccharides Longer chains of carbohydrates that you'd find in fiber, or are they just varying lengths, like you said? The word—I don't even remember what the word oligo means. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, like the number of
0: polymers, the number of the degree of polymerization isn't one; it's closer to like six or seven or eight. Like, and then above ten, I believe, is like a a fiber, like like characterized as a fiber.
1: Okay. Alright, God, what do you think about the carnivore diet though? Are they getting oligosaccharides from meat in some way? Certainly, certainly not. Really? Certainly yeah, certainly not. Is that a problem, do you think?
0: I think I think people could survive on a carnivore diet, but I think that every a hundred out of a hundred academic microbiome scientists would answer that question by saying that you're introducing a massive deficit to the host microbiota. A massive Deficit and first, and second, that you probably dramatically shift it from a saccharolytic state, which means breaking down carbohydrates, to a proteolytic state, uh, which is very adversely associated with uh, metabolic and cardiovascular health outcomes, just from the microbiome standpoint. I'm not talking about in the blood.
1: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I was talking with Dr. Stephen Gundry, who was poking some holes during our interview which might be released at the time that this interview comes out. Again, I'll put the show notes at bengreenfieldlife.com slash seed2. He was bringing up some statistics on true long-lived populations, or at least longer-living populations than some of the popular blue zones, and he was talking a lot about the process of fermentation of meat, dry aging, wet aging, There's even, like on lifehacker.com, they've got recipes for speeding up that process via fermenting the meat in fish sauce and kombu. Would the fermentation process applied to meat help to skirt some of these issues with inadequate fiber? There's no way. Fermentation can't
0: make a fiber. Spontaneous fermentation can't assemble amino acids into a fiber-like structure. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, fermentation can take a very long fiber and transform some chain lengths of that into different compounds. That's like, that's basically the, the the basis of fermentation is we break it down and convert it into other interesting compounds that your body might like. Like that's how acetate is made, for example, you know? So there's a, there's an interesting role for fermentation, but fermentation itself can't take like amino acid chains and make fibers out of them. Fibers have to start from carbohydrate. Actually, Mucin and some of the intestinal sugars, like uh, some of the backbones of like of mucin, of the mucosal layer, are actually more similar to that type of all saccharide based fiber structure. And that's why you see that like mucin degrading bacteria, they like those fibers because they're, you know, they're able to have all the environment that's necessary to also adhere to mucin and to degrade marginally mucin. But be careful.
1: If you degrade too much mucin, that can also, that, that can also take you to a, bad, to a bad place. Stephen Gundry, in the book, by the way, that he just wrote that I talked to him about, it's called Gut Check. I think his main argument was that there are some potentially harmful sugars associated with chronic disease in meat. I believe they're called new 5GC. And the process of fermentation somehow deactivates or pre-digests those sugars and I don't think he was making the argument that the fermentation somehow causes the non-existent fiber in meat to some, yeah. somehow benefit the biome. I think it was more the elimination of potentially harmful sugars. And- I mean, that's possible. That that is. I've I've heard that hypothesis.
0: I don't have a definitive opinion on it, but it's certainly plausible that uh, subjecting meat to microbial fermentation could alter it in a way, uh, that could make it less harmful. That hypothesis could, 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 could definitely be true.
1: Now, a lot of people are sensitive to fiber. They're way back in the day. I interviewed this guy. You'd probably find him fascinating. He wrote a book called the fiber menace and his name was Konstantin Kovarovsky, something like that. Anyways, totally vilified Fiber And talked about how it causes gastric distress in a lot of people. And I think people who have had, for example, small intestine bacterial overgrowth or SIBO have certainly reported having issues with the whole idea of resistant starches, inulin, green banana starch, etc., causing bloating and digestive distress. Even after I interviewed Constantin, yeah, I, I I was doing like the giant blender bowls of kale and I learned this from Mark Sisson, and I don't know if he still does this, but big ass salads with just like tons of nearly pounds of vegetables for lunch. When I began to reduce that amount of specifically raw fiber intake, my gut did feel a lot better with respect to bloating and indigestion. Uh, irritation, gas, etc. cetera. I think that a lot of people have kind of tuned into the idea that maybe excess fiber might not be that great, especially if you have those issues. And some people have even cut out fiber quite a bit, maybe not gone to the full carnivore diet, but they're limiting fiber. Now, what I'm wondering is this, if let's say I'm traveling and I'm not eating as much vegetables and fruit and fiber, or I've got digestive issues, and I've decided to try lowering the amount of fiber that I take in. Could using a probiotic actually allow for you to get all the benefits that you're looking for in fiber? Like, Even if I was eating just meat, what if I were to just take a probiotic? Would that replace a lot of what it is that I'm missing from fiber?
0: I think think reduction of fiber for people that have symptoms from it is fine. I think I'm not sure if that's optimal. I think that maybe speaking to microbes that are in regions of the intestinal tract that maybe not the best suited or are at the right place. I think that that field is still developing, but that can also explain some of those symptoms is that, you know, there's other organisms that are causing those symptoms that would normally be crowded out or in an optimal microbiome would be, wouldn't be there at all, but have already been outcompeted. So I think that that's an interesting area to explore. What are those organisms and how can you fix that? you know, why then would there be several studies where people take antibiotics and actually their ability to eat fiber goes up, right? So there's, Mm -hmm. there's, there's validation for this hypothesis that there's a microbial component to, uh, fiber intolerance or to resistant starch intolerance. Um, I think that to dramatically cut down fiber without replacing it with a very, biologically relevant amount of other substrates so like flavonoids polyphenols there's certain carotenoids that structurally are also able to be metabolized by the microbiome also enrich for very interesting pathways and also keep that organ that microbiome metabolically active in a positive way and so i think any dramatic reduction of fiber intake should be cautiously paired with something of that type right like here's and, and you have to take this seriously. Like I'll give you one example. So uh, a paper came out in a, in a leading scientific journal a few months ago on acromancia, And it found that in the presence of a low fiber diet, it went from protective to inflammatory and triggering food allergy. So again, really? out it was a, it was, it was a, it was a very well designed, like I think it was even a nature paper, but it was an, an animal model. And so it was a very mechanistic paper but yeah, that's that. That was that. That was the takeaway, which is, if if you have acromantia, or if you take acromantia, it should be paired with a high fiber diet. Otherwise, it'll probably my hypo- My hypothesis is it'll start to degrade your mucins, induce more inflammation at that local site, and actually increase the inflammatory signaling coming out of the microbiome.
1: Well, that's actually really good to know too, because you know I, I interviewed Colin Cutcliffe of Pendulum, that makes a, an acromantia based product. And she brought forth some data that indicated that acromantia may assist with fiber digestion in people who tend to get some of these bloating and gas type of issues in response to a high fiber diet. So I suppose it makes the case that if you're going to use acromantia, A, don't avoid fiber and B, maybe be less scared of fiber because it might actually help you to digest it. I think there's many bacteria that serve that function. So there's many
0: bifidobacterium, there's many uh, bacteroides, there's many uh, lactobacilli. The interesting thing about acromantia is that it does do that, but you don't normally have a lot of it. There's not a high abundance of acromantia normally. And so when you think about rounding out your microbiome to be able to handle high fiber production, I would consider, you know, open the question of what what is the best can cocktail of organisms to actually accomplish that you probably want a diverse cocktail and you probably want them all to have pathways for, for fiber degradation i wake up
1: every morning and i make myself a giant mason glass jar full of adrenal support that's right whole food vitamin c from acerola fruit extract and sodium from redmond's real salt that has over 60 trace minerals to support my adrenal glands which Based on my lifestyle, I do tend to get pooped out if I don't pay attention to giving them the fuel that they need. This stuff is third-party label claim verified, a 100% money-back guarantee, and it is brought to you by one of my favorite companies out there for this kind of support, Jigsaw Health. Jigsaw Health Adrenal Cocktail is what it's called with whole food vitamin C. Visit JigsawAC.com and use Greenfield10 to get 10% off your order. JigsawAC.com and use Greenfield10 to get 10% off your order. I don't think it's any secret that I am a fan of ketones. They're like the fourth macronutrient. You got carbs, you got proteins, you got fat, then you got their cool cousin ketones, which lets you crush a day eating minimal calories, going for hours on end without fueling. Ketones help you to battle inflammation. They're healthy for the gut. They're amazing for the brain. They're a preferred fuel for the liver and the heart and the diaphragm and the brain. And that's why I started using them way back when I was racing Ironman Triathlon and why I still use them. I drink them on a plane when I don't want to eat crappy airplane food. I drink them before workout when I don't have time to eat, but I need to feel as though I've got enough energy. I drink them before bed for a slow bleed of energy into my system while I'm asleep. So versatile, so healthy, and HVMN has cracked the code on making ketones affordable and efficacious. Health via Modern Nutrition is the company, H-V-M-N, and they're going to give you 30% off your first subscription order of Ketone IQ. If you go to HVMN.com slash Ben G, that's HVMN.com slash Ben G. If you subscribe on checkout, you're going to get 30% off. You can also find HVMN in any California earth bar locations, which are located within that fancy gym Equinox and all Sprouts grocery store locations or at HVMN.com slash Ben G. Check it out. Ketone IQ. Wanna backpedal for a second back to babies. Since the last time I interviewed you, you've sent me a few packets of this powdered, I don't know if it's a symbiotic or a probiotic or how we you would define it, but it's a pediatric product. It's different than the one that I've been taking on a regular basis. What's different about the pediatric product that you're that you're making and why? Sure. So dso one
0: is the not is the adult product, and that is a 24-strain mixture, but that's not the most important part. The important part is that there's multiple strains of from within the same species in that composition. So it's what's called a redundant consortia. So it's a very interesting transient probiotic consortia designed for adult consistent usage. That's the intention of it. And, and with activity across different organ systems, across many different uh, biological systems within the body.
1: Okay. And I don't want to derail you. I don't want to derail you from the pediatric thing. I want to come back to that. But what do you mean when you say transient? Do you mean these, these probiotics go through the gut, washed away, and they're gone? They're transient in the sense of they don't result in
0: long-term chronic shifts of the composition of the native microbiome. So they don't displace or modifiably alter in a healthy state the native microbiome. Why is that important? I mean... The microbiome is an ecology which is uh, quite varied between people. And so certain organisms and certain microbes work in what what we call networks. They work with other organisms that they're used to working with. Acromantia, just to, to, to drive that point home, is part of a network of four or five organisms that when you look in people that have ackermansia are typically co-localized and co-located with. So the microbiome is a a resilient yet also uh, fragile ecology in the sense that there's shifts from time to time and especially in periods of duress like after a course of antibiotics in a condition that microbiome may play a role like IBS those are two areas that we've studied um, you have to be very careful and, and, and considerate about which microbes you're introducing into into that ecology and and what you're trying to do. So transient transient can be good for the goal of that. If you're trying to cure depression, you probably don't want a transient consortia. You probably want to take very high amounts of coprococcus and dialister, you know, different bugs. And you'd want to take probably antibiotics first to wipe everything away so you have the best chance of making those new bugs actually take over and build a new ecosystem as a foundation of that of that ecological recovery. I mean, that's how it works in drugs. If you have a C diff infection, you take a course of antibiotics to wipe everything out. Then you're transplanted a stool, a whole stool from another person. And then you let that try to recover. But if you just take the stool from another person and you just put it in without the antibiotics, you have much lower engraftment and, and long-term
1: colonization rate. So it can be good. It can be bad. It depends on what you're, what you're trying to do. So if, if, the transient product is designed not to disrupt the presence of an already arguably healthy microbiome. If I've got a healthy or good microbiome, why would I even take it in the first place? Specifically referring to the, to the DSO-1 that you guys make. It's a very good question. So there's two parts to think about what you want a probiotic to do.
0: You want a probiotic to do things to other microbes in your microbiome, like microbe, microbe interactions. And then there's things you wanted to do to the host, so microbe-host interactions. Now, what we learned as we were progressing was that most of the microbe-host interactions actually don't happen in the colon. The colon is a lot more protected. It has a much thicker mucosa. It has a much more dense uh, community. But actually, there's something different about ingesting, about that daily inoculation of microbes and their transit and passage through the body that we believe seem responsible for many of the host side effects the, the the microbe host side of those two interactions and like one good example is probably a lot of intestinal immunity is regulated there because the immune cells that reach out and sample it are are big drivers of T cell differentiation of immunity and other examples like uh, the gastrointestinal barrier, the epithelial barrier is most is more permeable in the small intestines and the end of the small intestines than you'd expect it to be in, in the in the colon, because it actually bypasses that. So it actually gets absorbed in the intestines on their path down. So most of your microbiome or most of what's already in your microbiome isn't going to interact with those other parts of the gastrointestinal system on a day-to-day basis. And so like for that you have to look more to like probiotics. And if they're human-native strains, it's just a different level. People have also, for some host side effects, tried to look to fermented foods there's a very interesting way to think about fermented foods as well um, but you know you have to you have to really dissect what you're trying to look for and what you're trying to deliver there's an independent benefit of daily inoculate microbial inoculation than what your microbiome is to begin with that's probably the the most important part.
1: Okay, so when I take a probiotic, even if I've got a good microbiome, what I'm doing is upregulating the function of things like the gut immune action, the mucosal lining, the the potential of something like a permeable gut, and some of these things that just having a healthy microbiome might not be sufficient to allow for.
0: Yeah, well, that was actually the primary finding of our, of our placebo-controlled trial on DSO-1 after antibio- a course of broad-spectrum antibiotics. That was a, a clinical trial that we did. And the first and strongest and pro- probably most striking out, uh, finding was concurrent to antibiotics, which actually disrupt the epithelial barrier. They, they disrupt the gut barrier. So that was a, a very interesting finding. Uh, the second one was that DSO-1 rescued that gut barrier disruption and almost 90% uh, versus 10% to placebo. So it was a very strong effect, right? Like uh, based on this lactulose mannitol test. And the third thing was that that effect persisted out to two weeks after taking the, cor- the original course of antibiotics. And so that's kind of like the host side of it. And then if you ask about microbiome, there's a lot of other findings I think are very interesting. But I think that that framework for people
1: might be interesting to think about. So if I were going to use that strategy, if I were, you know, God forbid to have to get on some kind of a hefty antibiotic regimen, would I begin to use the DSO-1 symbiotic during my antibiotics or would I wait until I'd finish the course? Concurrent. Okay. Concurrent. Take it at the same time. That's how the trial was designed. Okay. Got it. Now I kind of derailed you as you were beginning to explain why the pediatric blend is different than the DSO-1. Yeah. So on
0: so composition, the... It's it's different on, on outcome. It's different. The pediatric product is uh, fewer strains, but also multiple strains from comprising different strains of the same species. So more redundancy, more representation of the diversity within individual species, and paired with a fermentable prebiotic. And so the primary outcome for that was that when when consulting pediatricians. In designing the trial, we were told that this trial, were it to address pediatric constipation or regulate the the, the GI system of children, would address the single most common uh, reason for pediatrician visits, which is uh, pediatric constipation. I think it's like one in three or one in four kids see a doctor for it, have it.
1: Yeah. Useful and, for uh, a parent's sanity too, because no parent wants to be waiting there 15 minutes to use the bathroom themselves when their kid's on the toilet. Yeah, I'm sure. The, the, yeah. The, the, the age though, what's the age at which you'd take or stop taking something like this?
0: Well, that you could start as early as three. You should continue for as long as regulation of the gastrointestinal system is a primary benefit or goal that you have. And then I think, you know, maybe even post-adolescent onwards, I would recommend, I don't know what the official recommendation is, but from a biological standpoint, you know, I would say as soon as you're Highly diverse, and if you're able to balance out your carbohydrate and your fiber intake in a somewhat meaningful way, um, you can switch over. Okay. Do you have kids? Uh, I do. I have one uh, uh, five-month-old son.
1: Okay. Knowing what you know, if you were to kind of have the gold standard feeding, or probiotic, or or you know, breast milk consumption, or human oligosaccharide consumption human milk, oligosaccharide consumption for a young human being coming into this world to give them as many advantages as possible from a microbiome standpoint, what would it generally look like in terms of of what you'd feed a young human being to optimize that?
0: I mean, I think about this all the time now. So I've as detailed and intricate of an answer as you want to that question. It's (laughs) (laughs) um, I think I'm very, very interested in the development of the gut and the brain and they're kind of related there's a lot of compounds that drive that uh, either comprise the structure of it or drive the development of it I think uh, for the first few months as, as much as possible one should exclusively breastfeed at least through four months try to get to six if you can but at least through the first four months if there's no bifidobacterium infantis so I didn't do a test per se but I gave him early inoculation of bifidobacterium infantis around week three or week four. And, wait, uh, wait, wait! What
1: do you mean early inoculation?
0: I mean, I I did it myself. I work with and grow a lot of different strains. So I took two or three strains from our library of Bifidobacterium infantis, and I put it on on his on the tip of his tongue, and then he
1: breastfed right after. By the and, way, look, uh, look at you! You got your library of probiotics, you got your gastric yeah. simulators. Jeez, everybody's yeah. going to be going to be uh, <laughs> envying your setup at home. So you well, inoculated your son with those strains.
0: What else? Yeah. You do you Yeah. Well, that's first, then you get to breastfeeding. When you get to diversification, you want to get carotenoids and N3 fatty acids as early as possible. You want to make sure that mom is taking very, very high dose, at least DHA, but ideally DHA and EPA, that that's going to directly pass through the breast milk. And even during the breastfeeding phase, you want to make sure mom's eating an incredibly diversified diet in carotenoids. Carotenoids are very unique in that they actually are stored in in are broken down in the gut alongside like like polyphenols and and other flavonoids and some other plant-based compounds but they also are make their way directly into the eye and into the brain and and that's very interesting to me right that this there's this very precious class of compounds that crosses the placenta it crosses the blood-brain barrier it's allowed to aggregate in the brain of your offspring like and so I'm very, very interested in in some of these types of plant-based compounds. Gonna
1: sell a lot of mini carrots to pregnant, and breastfeeding yeah. women with this. What what other food sources are rich in carotene? By the way, that you like? Uh, not just car- not just carotene. So I should clarify that it's,
0: the class are carotenoids, and there are a wide variety of of compounds. There's about 40 or 50 in the human diet that are found across the co- the spectrum of color. Uh, basically, they comprise color in in certain vegetables by having an absorbing effect on, on, on the light spectrum and reflecting out others. So that's their relationship. They, they function alongside chlorophyll as a relevant molecule in, in plant biology that just turns out to be very interesting for, for humans too. I mean, we benefit a lot from that. So just
1: colorful vegetables.
0: Yeah. As, as, as rich and deep, most Pigments in vegetables are driven by something in the carotenoid family or also in the marine environment, things like astaxanthin or zeaxanthin. There's few few in, in the sea as well.
1: Got it. Anything you go out of your way specifically for your son or that you recommend folks avoid? I mean, I'm pushing for him to get onto,
0: onto polyphenols as quickly as possible as well. So uh, blueberries, bilberries... Uh, you know, just most of your bright, low, su- relatively lower sugar berries, I think are, you, you're you just going to
1: get so much of it, so much good stuff from that. Fantastic. You've just described the diet that my sons grew up on. So I feel very good about that. And I'll still probably yeah, forward but, them but this podcast sons, in a few years. Probably, so I've, <laughs> so yeah. I've got healthy grandchildren, but
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I see well, that's them, great. I see, I see them also probably drinking the oil of the fish straight out of the pan in, in addition. <laughs> they're, so They're
1: not that extreme, although I have to admit, they probably get their fair share of chicken fecal matter from doing an inadequate job washing the eggs they go down and harvest every day from our chickens. So they are that's, getting a, that's, an adequate microbiome, that and licking the goats. That's that's <laughs> it. You
0: see you see in the first two years of life, you'll see introduction of all kinds of things that kids eat. You know, you'll see everything that they eat show up, but it doesn't last very long. It, it just passes through and signals to the host to teach it tolerance that's the hypothesis behind early early rich microbial exposure and its effect on the immune system is that you're born inflamed microbes and certain ones are better at teaching your immune system tolerance over time that benefits you that benefits your immune system it makes it more calibrated
1: yeah that makes sense hey back to antibiotics A lot of people get on antibiotics and finish and feel like their brain has changed. And I don't think it's any secret, you know, the existence of the gut-brain axis. But are there certain things like natural antidepressants or something like that, that your body is churning out that just get nuked by an antibiotic regimen? Is there something to do about that? I mean, definitely.
0: It's more than, you know, there's, um, I think the last library had about around 500 different neuroactive metabolites that come just from the microbiome so it's so powerful that if you take if you take your blood and you do un- metabolomics like broad spectrum untargeted metabolomics on every metabolite in your blood and you do that to 10 people and then you give all of them a very high dose broad spectrum antibiotic and subsequent to that you do that again you won't be able to match people back to their own sample after after it's the only it's the only time it's the only event where you're not able to do that in, meta- in the field of metabolomics it's the only event that renders you incapable of matching your sample back your your own biological sample to itself so there's many of there's there's many of them and so so after a course of antibiotics absolutely but it's it, but it rebuilds right like we in our trial we saw that after 12 weeks it builds but it comes back differently right so This is where I think there's an opportunity to guide that recovery of the microbiome. In the case of DSO-1, we had a rescue effect on what are called low-abundance microbes. So this means low-abundance microbes that were already in someone's gut coming in that took the antibiotic and took a placebo were gone more extinct in comparison to the DSO-1 arm where it enriched and kind of protected through what we believe is a very strong cross-feeding function, right? So it, 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 it donates that cross-feeding consortia function to let some of those microbes tap into those networks to get back up and going again. And remember, some of these bugs need very specific network of other bugs around them to be able to grow. you see these things cluster together a lot. That's another very interesting finding that we found where DSO-1 in particular could be, it could be an optimal time to start DSO-1 is alongside the completion of a course of antibiotics,
1: Hey, there's a guy who's really been making the waves in regenerative medicine, longevity, and anti-aging. His name is Dr. Adil Khan. I interviewed him on my podcast, and he has quietly behind the scenes been assembling the who's who of biohacking and longevity to descend upon Austin, Texas in February, namely February 24th for an epic one-day event. Me, Dave Asprey, Tom Bilio, Ian White, Dr. Adil Khan himself, Peptides Guru Jean-Francois Tremblay, DNA Guru Kashif Khan, and a whole lot of other fantastic folks are going to be a part of this event that goes from 8.30 in the morning until 5 p.m. in the evening with networking and uh, potential good times afterwards, and you're invited. You're invited. Uh, Not only that, I'm going to give you a discount on a ticket price and a link to where you can get in. Uh, Go to bengreenfieldlife.com forward slash unlock-longevity. That's bengreenfieldlife.com forward slash unlock-longevity. I'd love to see you in Austin Saturday. Clear your calendar. Saturday, February 24th for this. I'll probably get into Austin a few days early. Stay a couple days after. So if you're coming into town, I'm sure we'll be able to get up to all sorts of fun stuff, including a cold plunge in Barton Springs. Who doesn't love that? bengreenfieldlife.com forward slash unlock-longevity. Longevity. I'll see you there in Austin. A lot of people will use, uh, you know, I guess it's, you know, Xanax or diazepam or something like Valium. And I think it was, by the way, you guys have a fantastic article database on your website at seed.com. I think it was there that I was reading up on a natural compound. Uh, I want to say it was like Nordazepam, something like that, that the body actually makes that is affected by an antibiotic regimen. That's gut mediated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's just crazy that your body can churn out natural antidepressants and you can nuke them with an unhealthy microbiome. The other interesting thing, and I think I also learned this from your website, is that if you have been on an antibiotic, you can be far more susceptible to heavy metal absorption from things like sushi, tuna, etc. Is, is there something to that? Yes, there is. Microbes can, they can bind to metals and metabolize
0: them or excrete them or at least lower their absorption rate. But again, remember the system. So if that absorption of that metal is happening up before your microbiome, that's out of reach. It's just different chambers. It's different, but it's a different game. So only for colonically absorbed areas, that's the case. The other way that, not the microbiome, but that probiotics could benefit is that and more than just metals, but things like even microplastic, right, which is varies between 0.1 to 1 and M in in size. If it's above a certain threshold, I think it's 0.7, it generally shouldn't enter into the body. Like 90% of the microplastics that we consume, and there's a lot of them, they're in fish all the time now, they're in water, they're in anything we eat in takeout that's heated. Like no one doubts that we have tremendous exposure to very small particles of plastic now that's only gonna get worse. And the amount of plastics that's being produced and how much it decomposes and where it has entered into the oceans, this it's a matter of time before it actually permeates many, many more things. So but a lot of that won't get absorbed if you have the right intact barrier and, and a barrier that, that supports it. So I think there are periods of distress that allow the body to be more permissive or more tolerant of things that in an optimal world we would
1: excrete we wouldn't even have to endure yeah it makes me think about you know in microbiology lab i spent one summer as an undergrad doing fluorescence assays on potential bacteria that could bioremediate in this case we were looking at i don't think it was plastics i think i think in this case it was actually metals i don't recall it was too many years ago i'm getting old but the the idea behind bioremediation using organisms like bacteria from what I understand, that's kind of like one of the fundamental premises of Seed Labs, yeah? Yeah, I mean,
0: uh, Seed Labs is an ecological uh, division of the company, is the ecological division of the company. And so it's considered uh, a wide variety of microbial applications that relate to ecologies and, and certain environments, marine environments, pollinated, pollination environments, uh, waste degradation, nutrient uptake, and even marine marine diversity and symbiosis in marine e- ecosystems like uh, densely populated coral reefs. So we've had four or five very big projects there that are uh, all ecological of nature, um, and plastic degradation was one of them.
1: Well, selfishly enough, I'm interested in something else because I love to put bee pollen in my smoothie. I do a ton of raw honey. I have it with salmon Ugh, a lot, probably too much. I do a, a bunch of different bee... Products, you know, the, um, what's that one company? Beekeepers Naturals. You know, I even like suck on Beekeepers Lollipops while I'm playing tennis. The impact on bees, though, what are you guys doing as far as that's concerned? Because it's my understanding you're doing some kind of work between bacteria and bees. Yeah.
0: So this program was based on the discovery that bees have a, a kind of microbiome in their hindgut and that some of those strains that are resident there it's actually a type of lactobacillus that are native into honeybees perform a valuable function in detoxifying just what's called xenobiotics which could be referred to anything that's toxic from the environment but the class of xenobiotic in particular was pesticides and the class of pesticides in particular was the neonicotinoid pesticides which are super destructive to uh to to honeybee uh colonies so this is a very interesting finding, and so the premise was: well, could you enrich for those and build a, a small little honeybee microbiome ecology that optimizes for this detoxification pathway? And so, after a lot of enrich- enrichment experiments, uh, found a mix including Lactobacillus kunkei, that one native strain, and uh, and I think it's had four field trials now in three different continents. Like it's 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 quite impressive how that. In that body of literature has progressed and uh, been very efficacious for pesticide-induced death of the bee, but also in, in other um, pathogen that gets to, to young bees in the first few days of life. It's a, type of, uh, it's a type of pathogenic infection that if you actually find it as a beekeeper, if you find it, you have to torch your whole hive and all the surrounding ones because it's, it's so toxic, it's so bad, and it, it could spread so quickly. So prevented young bees from having
1: uh, infection of that pathogen. That's interesting. When you talk about uh, nicotinoid pesticides, it makes me think about this interview I did a few weeks ago with Jonathan Otto. He discussed pesticide-like compounds winding up in medical supplies, plastic tubing, even vaccines, and mentioned that the use of nicotine products such as a nicotine patch may actually bind to some of the same receptor sites and make you less susceptible to damage from pesticides and herbicides uh, based on the fact that apparently they're somewhat similar to, to nicotine itself. I don't know if that has anything at all to do with the honeybee research, but it's interesting. They are somewhat
0: similar in the sense that if you give honeybees the choice of glucose water or this neonicotinoid pesticide, uh, over time, it'll begin to prefer the, the, that pesticide because of exactly that same pathway than than the sugar water. So in that respect, it is. I can't comment on if that means you should
1: start taking nicotine to to yeah, protect yourself <laughs> from pesticides. <laughs> yeah, but I do. I I, 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 yeah. I don't know how far I'd go there. I have a few of the fourteen milligram nicotine patches in my pantry, and I'll occasionally put one off if I need a little bit of energy or from going out to a dinner party at night to keep me out past my bedtime. But it is a nootropic, and it is it does access brain chemistry
0: in a very clear way. So.
1: Yeah. That probably works. And by the way, this is probably a little bit relevant. There's a lot of people who use nicotine gum and lozenges and all sorts of oral nicotine products. You ever come across anything that shows the impact of nicotine on the microbiome specifically? The impact of smoking, but not uh, separated out for nicotine per se, but the
0: impact of smoking affects several different microbiomes. And women, actually, it affects a different one. It affects their vaginal microbiome in a very... uh, a destructive way. Smokers in particular are the are, are most likely to not have an optimal CST-1,
1: which is the most protective state. I think you mentioned to me as we were leading up to this podcast in the past few weeks that you have something you're working on for the vaginal microbiome. I find that interesting. I know a lot of women who will use like vaginal uh, suppositories for the microbiome, but what exactly are you guys working on? Uh, so the the
0: vaginal microbiome is quite unstable but but when it is optimal it is very stable and it's typically only a couple different strains of the same species and of one species ideally and the best of those species would be lactobacillus crispatus that is the you know hallmark of an optimal vaginal microbiome it protects inhibits uh pathogens from existing it uh, has anti-inflammatory uh, benefits and it it's associated with fertility it's associated with reduction of spontaneous preterm birth it's associated with positive outcomes in um, in, in, vir- in in stis we have an, an IND approved on the FDA by the FDA to actually study uh, our composition on cervical cancer as a result of HPV so we think that it would clear the, the therapeutic product that we're developing we think that that would clear, uh, HPV more consistently and faster, uh, which is a very prevalent, uh, viral infection, which is also learning to escape vaccines. So very important reason. And also when you've, if you've just given birth, for example, um, you have a very disruptive vaginal microbiome because your estrogen levels are low and prolactin is up. And also if you're perimenopausal or, or or postmenopausal, um, is far more likely to be disrupted and out of that state, um, because of changes in circulating estrogen levels. So it's a very interesting space. So what we developed is actually an entire ecology that comes, that represents the entire genomic content. Again, remember that multiple strains of the same species that represents the entire genomic content of that optimal genome. And it also is optimized for stability and resist, and resilience. And so the idea here is that you can actually take it and over time... But well, we know that you can rapidly, in the first month, induce this community state type CST1, and with minimal ongoing maintenance monthly, you can you can sustain
1: it. What's the strain again? I missed it when you when you said it. Start with the C, I think. It's called it's called Lactobacillus crispatus, it, okay. it is
0: also referred to as CST1. There's four. There's five different CSTs, which is like the t- the type
1: of vaginal microbiome that any given person may have. Got it. And when that product is released, is that going to be a vaginal suppository? Yeah, that is. Okay. And is there a retention time that's necessary? Uh, The first
0: month is a little bit more involved where you need to take it every other day for the first week and then once a week for the rest of the month because what you're doing is you're inducing that colony formation. So unlike gut applications. Here you want colonization. Here you want to actually Mm. displace anything that's there, outcompete it and engraft and be the only player in there, right? Like you want to have the entire metabolic
1: activity restricted to this bacteria. That would be the most optimal state. Okay. That makes sense. Not related to the, the vaginal biome, but I guess back to the symbiotic, I get your monthly refill pack of that. And occasionally I've broken open the capsules and it's kind of like a capsule inside of a capsule. What's going on there?
0: Many human native strains are quite sensitive to water and other plant materials. So like in like a big smoothie or like a yogurt, for example, or like a a nutritional powder, greens powder, or um, a fermented food, like it's very unlikely that high amounts of these human, many of these human native strains will stay viable over a long period of time. So to protect those strains, First and foremost, they're in a capsule just for themselves. So the, the probiotics and all the live organisms in DSO-1 are kept by themselves in that inner capsule. That capsule is then flooded around with with a punicalgan-rich prebiotic polyphenol. So this is a high punicalgan load.
1: Wait, I, I, wait I, I know this, by yeah. the way, punicalgan, that's found in pomegranate, right? That's right. That's right. I aced that. That's right. Okay, the
0: it's, it's part of the elagitanin family. So these are these big, big, big molecules, right? Like only about 3 or 4% of them actually get into your blood. So most of them flood the microbiome and, they, and they, they can feast on it. And they break it down into these secondary and tertiary metabolites that are actually really interesting. And uh, we think can, can signal into other organ systems by, by being bioconverted by your microbiome.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting because one of the reasons that I first started taking the seed symbiotic was a little bit prior to first meeting you, I had listened to like a two hour long podcast on pomegranates and the pomegranate oil and seed and fiber and skin and juice and had pretty much made up my mind that come hell or high water, despite living in inland Washington, I was going to try to figure out how to eat a pomegranate a day. And then I looked at the profile of the symbiotic. I'm like, oh, wait, I could just take this, get all of that stuff with, you know, less fuss and less unwrapping and less figuring out how the heck do you get all the seeds out of the pomegranate? So I started using the DSO-1, but that was what originally kind of got me turned on to it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the structure of those polyphenols,
0: like a, a structural biology or like an organic chemistry standpoint, just actually look at them. They're so, they're, they're very, very interesting. Also from the skin, also from the rind, like... From the whole fruit, it's it's a it's a very, very uh, exciting and interesting molecule, you know, and, and certain bacteria in the gut love it as well. And so I think this it's a little bit more rare than you know, you can get certain classes of tannins from things like teas and, and dark chocolates and and you know, there's tannins you can induce through toasting and through other methods, but I think that this structure and this class uh, along some flavonoids, alongside some carotenoids, are very interesting, right? Like astaxanthin, I think, is a very interesting type of carotenoid. And uh, similarly, I would say that uh, punicalagin and and
1: other pomegranate polyphenols are very interesting uh, amongst polyphenols. It's fascinating. The laundry list of ingredients on the back of this probiotic, I think, rivals any that I've seen. Is it pretty much what I describe that I do? Is it three a day? Because I just wake up and I take three, and you know, maybe I'm not doing that correctly. In terms of with or without a meal but what's just general best practices if i get the symbiotic uh best practices is do two a day for just da- is as a daily regimen for maintenance we've maybe that's why i'm running out early i'm doing three.
0: Well, <laughs> <laughs> oops for, for no we've had we've had some people that have taken as many as in in certain periods i mean like off just on their own they've decided to uh, experiment with dosages but two gets you most of the activity that you're looking for it's the dosage that we studied in our antibiotics trial against the placebo dosage that we studied in our IBS trial against the placebo, um, but I think there may be some people, uh, you know, that at least I've heard p- people come in that have more gastrointestinal issues, and following a certain regimen will um, will experiment with with higher dosages to uh, kickstart certain metabolic pathways. So I, I can't comment on that with data. For two, I can, but I've I, I have heard of it.
1: Yeah, with without a meal does not matter?
0: I mean, it doesn't actually dramatically matter. It's a very small difference between, uh, we used to think that 10 minutes before a meal would give it the best delivery, the, the most viable cells. But, uh, actually after interrogating that research question, we found that it's the same number in more or less in both the fed and a fasted state. So it doesn't really matter for, for efficacy. Uh, I think what's most important is, is at least from what I've heard from people is, is sometimes they can tolerate it better after a meal versus on an empty stomach. And that that's normal. Like I always feel a bit strange telling people like like first time I took it, I threw up, you know, and I have a little bit more of a sensitive gut, but that period doesn't persist very long or like slight mo- modifications. If there's like discomfort, a little bit of distress, you can power through it very quickly. Like me and two, two out of the five other people that were the very first, you know, when the research was, was being, was, was being done in like 2014, 2015. Some of the earliest, earliest work on this. I think two more years of research and around
1: 2017 is when it came out to market. But yeah, I threw up. Wow. Got to put the warning label on there. May cause barfing. And by the way, definitely use it when you travel. It's, it's uh, stable, uh, non-refrigerated stable. I think you and I may have even talked about this in our first podcast, Raj, the impact of airline travel on the microbiome on jet lag symptoms related to microbiome. I'm heading out to India on Monday. I'll have my packet with me. I take three before I fly and three when I land, just based on the the impact that airline travel and radiation and stress and circadian rhythm uh, disruption has in the biome. So if you're listening, this stuff's great for travel too. I've just heard that from
0: so many different places now, including members of our scientific advisory board that go back and forth between France, go back and forth between uh, the UK, like They just use it regularly, which in in California and and New York, and uh, that's something you can
1: see actually right away. Yeah, incredible. Well, if you're listening, listen to my first podcast with Raja too, if you like to geek out on this stuff. We covered a bunch of new material there on probiotics and seed and the development of this stuff. Uh, The Symbiotic is one of the best formulated probiotics, probably the best formulated probiotic, possibly also breast formulated, I don't know, uh, that I've ever used. Uh, I'll put a link to it. We've got special offers, discounts, et cetera, over in the show notes where you can leave your comments, your questions, your feedback. You can also, of course, get linked out to the first podcast that I did with Raja. Ben GreenfieldLife.com slash seed two. Ben GreenfieldLife.com slash seed the number two. Raja, thanks again for coming on and giving me my, my every five years probiotic dose of wisdom. You got it. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. All right, folks, I'll son. see you soon. Ben Greenfield, right. along with Raja Deere from Seed, signing out. Have an amazing week. Hey, guess what? If you want me to interview bigger and better guests, the number one way to do that is to get this show a rating, a ranking, or review wherever you're listening to it. That helps out the show quite a bit across all levels, including delivering to you amazing. Amazing guests and episodes. So, go check out anywhere that you listen to this podcast. There should be a big, shiny button somewhere where you can leave a ranking, leave a review if you got a little extra time. Thank you so much. Do you want free access to comprehensive show notes, my weekly roundup newsletter, cutting edge research and articles, top recommendations from me for everything that you need to hack your life, and a whole lot more? Check out bengreenfieldlife.com. dot com. It's all there. bengreenfieldlife.com. dot com. See you over there.